0: Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and in this week's episode, I will be talking to Miguel Alvarado, who is the CTO, Chief Technical Officer of Lumiata, a healthcare AI company based in San Francisco, California. We will cover Miguel's unconventional journey from Microsoft in the early 90s to a brief foray into Macromedia Flash, all the way up until the present moment. Where he is helping bring the power of big data and ai to patients providers and insurers just like bruce wayne miguel works during the day but at night has an alter ego we will talk about his passion as an underground house and techno dj and finally we will close with a conversation about the importance of being present i had a real pleasure conducting this interview with miguel and i hope you enjoy in case you're wondering this music was actually produced by dj miguel alvarado himself the track is titled, Back of My Mind, something you should keep in the back of your mind during this interview. And without further ado, let's get this party started.
1: As a hobby, I am a, I'm a music producer slash music engineer. Oh, Nice. Like I got on, yeah, I have a small studio in the Tenderloins in, in uh, San Francisco. Oh it's what? Constantly. No way! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, like what's I like, got on all this stuff?
0: <laughs> oh, can you share your SoundCloud or do you have Spotify? Yeah, I have, or...
1: yeah, I, I have some stuff on Spotify. I have some stuff on uh, Beatport. That's for sale, unfortunately. and it's a couple things on YouTube. And um, my SoundCloud is super out of date, but there's a couple mixes they, there as well. I mean, they're out of date, but kind of okay yeah oh, i would love to, to listen i used to dj a lot and i used to book a lot of international djs in seattle then san francisco but
0: that's so cool oh my yeah. god
1: yeah, what genre I... was it just how so i would say anywhere between deep house on on the softer end all the way to techno mm-hmm. uh, and after hours techno and like everything in between you sound like like bruce wayne batman right now you know you're like by day you're uh
0: Lumiata, CTO, by night, you're after-hours techno DJ.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's how my life was for a super long time, actually. Like, no way. When I was like 27. So I'm, yeah, I'm 27 right now. Oh, there you go. So right around your age. Mm-hmm. Like, since uh, <laughs> so when I was 27, I went to Ibiza, Spain for the first time. And I already w- like DJing and I already like the, the house music scene. But when I went to Ibiza, VISA, oh my God, my life just changed. I was like, what is this? Like, just, I saw some of the best artists for me at the time, like Fat Boy Slim, Sander Kleinenberg, Eric mm. Morolo, who just passed away, unfortunately. And I was super inspired. So I came back to Seattle and I started getting really serious about it. It started a couple of nights.
0: A couple concerts,
1: Wow. Did that for a while, and it was really up to—I mean, 43 now, gonna be 44 in December. It was really up to like when my daughter was born. Then it became really hard. Between this, mm-hmm. it, it, it was a combination of the startup and my daughter. It's like two startups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, wow,
0: that's so cool, though. Oh my god, that's you're inspiring me, man. Like I, I, uh, you know, I feel like I, I don't know. I would love. <laughs> I, I'm gonna just share this with you, but like one of my dreams. Uh, this is just kind of like a dream hobby, but like I would love to like be a rapper (laughs)
1: you know well do it do it i mean that that's probably one of the advices i'll give to the to to people in the podcast which is diversify what you do if you just focus on one thing hobbies are important they're super important like we humans were wired to be creative right so sometimes Mm. unfortunately our professional life can't always be creative so we need that creative outlet, whatever it is. Mm. It could be wrapping, it could be knitting, it could be gardening, it could be writing a book. but it'll require a lot more of your time. but I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend it. Mm. I really like that because you feel Dang. full and I, what I notice is that one side feeds the other
0: mm, mm-hmm, in ways mm-hmm. that you
1: don't even envision that could happen. Mm. like it's happened to me that I'm in the middle of working on a track in front of the computer of the studio and then I think about all of I'm like oh well what if we did this in machine learning that is <laughs> <one thing. laughs> oh, that is so cool one time I started thinking about well how's machine learning really being used with music production right well I was in the studio and I started geeking out just looking reading papers and articles that led me to a paper about deep learning that then we the, it was a focus on music and I'm like, well, what if we did this, this, and this, and this with healthcare data? And then we brought it to the office and started talking about it. So
0: that is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> oh my God. That is so cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I wow. Think yeah. Well, we can get started. Well, I guess we were starting, I guess. Yeah, we can get started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so,
0: yeah. um, all right, let's, let's get started. Uh, Hey guys, um, My guest today is Miguel Alvarado. He is the CTO of Lumiata. And, um, you know, we've already been talking for a bit, but Miguel, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your path and how you eventually got involved with machine learning at Lumiata?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, I feel pretty honored to be here and get a chance to tell a bit of the Lumiata story and my personal story as well. Hopefully it can be helpful to a lot of you in more than one way. So um, I started my career in 1996 uh, in software. So I was uh, 19 at the time and I, that reveals my age, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I discovered is that age is, uh, it's a mental state. (laughs) Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. can only feel old, not be old. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, so uh, I started my career back then and I started at Microsoft. And uh, after Microsoft, I left Microsoft pretty early. Like I only stayed there two years. It was gr- it was fantastic as my first job because I learned how to build software in a world-class fashion. And I was in a couple of different groups and the second group was small business server and it was composed by thousands of engineers. So wow. it blew my mind that there could be a product built by thousands of engineers, right? It was a combination of Windows NT at the time. And that was the core team, and then there were some additional engineers working on small business server. But anyway, I started my career there. I left quickly because I wanted to. I felt that um, there was more that you could do in a startup, like you could have bigger, deeper influence right away. So after that, I went to work for a couple of startups, both of which had successful exits. Then I went to another startup, which I, it was very tiny; it was just four of us and we we were building a product to publish uh, rich media online. This is back when flash was starting to be, macro media flash was starting to be very hot.
0: I remember that. Oh my God, that was way back.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you had like slides, interactive slideshows and and interactive timelines. So our our software that we built would make make it easier to make those experiences. It would allow a non-technical person to build those things. Mm and, and very quickly in the lifetime of Metastories was another the company, we got acquired by another startup called uh, BrightCoke, founded by a gentleman, Jeremy Allaire, um, who used to be the CTO at Macromedia for some time. He built, he pioneered a lot of things in, in the rich media space. So we got acquired by that by that company. Um, and I stayed there for a long time. I got to IPO. Uh, after that, I went to work at Intel for a group. On Q, which uh, we we're building an inter- AA, internet television product, hardware and software, and internet services, and then our whole organization got acquired by Verizon. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying all this timeline is because I'll connect the dot with machine learning in a moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh-uh. And and then and then I w- the the gentleman, the senior vice president that ran on Q at uh, Verizon and Verizon, then became the CEO of Vivo. Vivo is the music video company, and after oh the V E V O right yes Vivo oh wow okay okay so Eric Huggers is his name. He brought me over to to run data and analytics at Vivo, so we built a data platform for internal analytics, and then we build data driven experiences for consumers. Um, and I mentioned this because this is where machine learning really started flourishing for me and in, in my personal. Um, world uh, so this is where I really connected with machine learning and we build things like algorithmic playlists similar to what you consume in Spotify, but only that they're uh, you know for music videos um, and then um, recommendation feeds and things of that nature um, and After that, um, things took a turn at Vivo. so a lot of us left uh, around two thousand and eight and I Took some time off to think about what I wanted to really do next because what had happened is, starting with MetaStories and then BrightOath, I got exposed to collecting data to make product data-driven decisions. And at Vivo, I started running video analytics, and we built the video analytics product for for Brightco, I'm sorry, not Vivo. Um, and what the, the way that we did that is we had to connect with all of our customers, I had to interview a lot of customers to understand what video analytics meant. And there were all big media companies that we were dealing with like time at the time. Uh, Al Jazeera was another company. I don't even remember the exact list anymore, but a lot of big media companies. So I had to talk with a lot of customers to figure out what video analytics would be. And that really gave me an intuition of what analytics really meant. In an enterprise, mm-hmm. large, medium, and small, very tailored towards media. but a lot of these shops that were doing analytics for the media space, they were also doing analytics in their own, in their own company for marketing, uh, sales, etc. So that really gave me. It opened my world when it comes to analytics and data. Uh, it opened my frame of reference uh, at Brightov, and then that's what allowed me to go to Intel and Verizon and kind of do the same thing. And that's what allowed me to do to go allowed me to go to Vivo and kind of do a bit of the same thing and beyond. Starting at Verizon, is where I re, at Verizon is where I really got exposed to machine learning. I worked very closely with the machine learning team. It wasn't my team, but I worked very closely with the team. And I learned a lot by, by just having that collaboration. So when I came to Vivo, I wanted to do some of the same things, but now I had to do it myself. My team had to do it. So, you know, I went through a, a bunch of uh, wrong turns to, to learn how to do things, right? But then, so I was saying I took a little bit of time off in, in between Vivo and Lumiere, and I realized well i have been mean, working on all, all these really exciting endeavors that are related to media and they're really fun and I've learned a lot they've been very rewarding but at the end of the day it's not like I'm helping make the world better in any shape or form it's like we provide a lot of new entertainment facilities a lot of new ways to consume content and help people get to the right content and that's great. And then that, you know, has some merit of its own, but I felt like I wanted to do now something where mm-hmm. the products that I built had some sort of effect on society. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, the two, two of the strongest pillars in any society have to be education and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I started to look at, well, where should I go? Should I go to education and healthcare? And I started looking at different companies and whatnot and I came across Lumiera and Started thinking about the idea of applying machine learning to healthcare, and I, I met the team, and I you know I interviewed with the CEO, I met the head of engineering, head of science, and we really really clicked, and, and it it appeared to me that they were on a path to something. Felt like man, machine learning in healthcare is going to be a big thing, and um, at the time, the product strategy was not fully fully defined and whatnot. Um, but because of that, I felt like a good time to join, because then I could be part of forming the build or or creating the new building blocks to take Lumiata to the next level. And I was very impressed with what they already done on the data science side of things. Um, and I was very impressed with how much healthcare and uh, knowledge they had, and even the head of data science, he seemed to have really good intuitions around the, the medical world because first of all personal passion of his and with his brothers and doctors so i think that that kind of gave him additional context so and they also knew that lumina had been working with physicians to do certain things so that's the really long answer to your question but i hope oh, that, that was great context how i got from one place to another and why
0: yeah that was really cool hearing how i feel like uh you know i haven't heard the words macro media flash <laughs> in years <laughs> Yeah. and it was cool to hearing how you know you started at microsoft and it's almost like i felt like you know i was hearing the history of like the internet in the 90s and the 2000s you know and then there's like youtube vivo music videos and now all the way to like modern day healthcare machine learning at lumiata like that's that's so cool you know the, yeah, the arc of your career is like intertwined no absolutely like, I get, like
1: that i get excited when i talk about these things because it it, it i feel like Yes, you're right, it's it's kind of like the history of the digital world in a sense, um, in digital media and some areas um, in our healthcare and having been able to live through that history has been super exciting. And uh, as you probably see, I've made little pivots here and there in my career, like it hasn't been the same thing. And that's been extremely rewarding. And what's really cool about jumping into healthcare is I feel that healthcare, if you compare it to the entertainment side, is it behind what's happening with machine learning and, and just big data in general. And I kind of hate the term big data because it's overused, but but it, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a and thing. machine learning. It, yeah, well, AI is overused. Right? Oh yeah, that's so why I, I try to stick to machine learning. However, not everybody knows what machine learning is. I have found mm-hmm. in something so AI is it's more of a statistical term. Um, but the the if it feels like it machi- i mean i'm sorry that healthcare is a little bit behind compared to entertainment so i feel that for some of us that have been in entertainment there's this opportunity to bring what we've done in the past and help move the needle with healthcare now in a context that's more meaningful because you're now helping making healthcare better and and in some cases, not all the time, unfortunately, but in some cases, potentially even affecting people's lives for good.
0: Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I do feel like in general, healthcare is, you know, it's an industry that moves very slowly. I'll, I'll preface that with an example. Um, I used to work in a hospital in an emergency department. This was three years ago. And while I was there, we transitioned from paper charts to digital <laughs> health records. So it's crazy that, you know, in like 2018, we were just making the transition.
1: Well, it, it's crazy that in 2020, we literally have, I believe it's three prospective customers that we're talking to right now that have a big pile of what I like to call analog health records. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and they're trying to get them into digital form. And the first step is to OCR, the data digitize the The second step is mm. to... Yeah, NLP extract the relevant pieces and put them in wow. structured data so they can be queried. But but it 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 has blown my mind that that is such a um, pervasive problem still today in healthcare. Yeah, I
0: guess this is a perfect segue to our next question. Um, so, in your words, what does Lumiata do?
1: So we are, in short, we are an AI platform company that serves healthcare and our platform has two sides. One side allows us to offer machine learning models that we have built, our our data science team has trained, to solve specific use cases in healthcare. And these models, along with their user interfaces and everything that comes with them, it's not just the model, there's a lot of infrastructure comes with being able to operationalize the model, APIs, UIs, et cetera. So our models are sold to the lines, the the, the the line of business people in healthcare. And we tailor payers and providers in some, and, and we're starting to tailor also uh, some types of health tech companies. And we help solve cases from predicting cost and risk of individuals and groups. This is where it's more on the insurance side. It could be used for, for the provider side as well. But this is more for the underwriting and actuarial teams inside a payer organization. Mm -hmm. So we go from there all the way to predicting disease onset and medical events, um, as as well as um, hospital admission and readmission for various uh, reasons. And so we have a library of over 100 machine learning models, and people can come, tell us what use cases they have, what are the problems they're trying to solve, and we can pick maybe one or more models and deploy them so that they can consume them. The way they can consume them is looking at the, re- the predictions that our user interfaces, but we can also push the predictions to their systems so that we can integrate with their legacy systems. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, that I have learned in not just this context, but the other context is that to disrupt you have to kind of play ball with the status quo a little bit. In other words, you can't come in and say, just use Lumiana and that's it. And, and switch for, from wherever you are right now to 100%. That would never work. So integrating with, with legacy systems is a very important thing that we have to do. So we do that. We, we, we get data from our customers and we push predictions back to wherever they want us to, to push them to. That's one side of the the product and then there's many, I can further segment that side of the product more, but I'll leave it at that for the sake of time. The other other side is we started to build tools for us to better industrialize our machine learning world, right? End to end, when I joined Lumiera, we were uh, in a data center, for instance, we hadn't even moved to cloud. So Lumian itself had to go through a bit of, it, of a digital transformation, a mini digital transformation. Then uh, we went to, now we're in Google Cloud, and and we've built a lot of automation in our whole process from going to raw data to doing all the data prepping and enrichment and, and data quality uh, checks and assessments, all that, all the way to automatically training models and, and retraining and futurization, generating Uh, machine learning features, all that. So we've industrialized the world end to end so that we can whip out more models quicker and we can experiment more. We can, you know, for the same types of models, we can take a lot of different approaches and, you know, this is why it's called data science, right? Taking a scientific approach to getting to better results. But to do that, you need to have a solid foundation. So we did that for ourselves. And at some point we realized, well, now there's pockets of data science teams popping up in healthcare. What if those people are gonna have the exact same problems that we had? What if we commercialize the tooling so that these people um, can, can, can better build machine learning uh, models on their end? And it's not a matter of us trying to replace the teams now, it's a matter of us wanting to help those teams move the needle with, with machine learning slash AI and healthcare. So uh, because we have the two sides of the product offering, you know, we can we can meet people in healthcare anywhere they're at in the AI kind of like trajectory, if you will. There's this kind of trajectory that is very similar that everybody has to go through. So wherever they're at, we can meet them there and then help them move the needle for that.
0: Mm. So I'm curious, uh, you know, there's a common adage in machine learning that's just, the uh, the model is only as good as the data that uh, yeah. that trains it. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, one, where do you guys get your data? Uh, and then my follow up question, or if, if you can share, <laughs> where do you guys get your data? I'm yep. curious to know. And then my follow up question is two. Um, there's another saying where it's like the the further you le- like the further you are from your training data, like the less predictable your model is. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like when, when you're trying to apply to time, it elsewhere. When it comes to um, time. Or just like use cases, like Got it. If, if like your model was trained on a certain kind of data in like this region and with this patient population, if you try and generalize it to a different region or patient population, like perhaps the accuracy might fall. You know, like yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about those two things.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. Um, and there's a few things we do. So, we have collected, we have acquired our own data assets. I mean, you can't be an AI company, a machine learning company without data. Data yeah, is your, yeah. like, because at the end of the, if you look at, there's this amazing Google paper uh, titled something like The Tech Debt, The Technical Debt of Machine Learning Systems, I believe. And there's a lot of really great things. And that's kind of like the paper that has spun off the machine learning operations uh, movement, the MLOps movement. Anyway, the, the one really impactful thing about that paper that I love is there's a diagram at some point that shows, you know, what an AI system looks like. And there's all these boxes, all these big boxes. And there's a tiny, tiny, tiny box in the middle that reads ML code. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, basically, the, 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 the part of a system that is the machine learning code is a tiny piece of the entire puzzle. Mm-hmm.
0: It's not mm-hmm.
1: just the data, it's the infrastructure that you need and, and you need to, if you're doing real-time inferences and things of that, that nature, you need to have very strong infrastructure. If you're doing online training, like training in real-time, that's yeah. a whole other animal. That's and fascinating. Keeping these systems up to date with continuous delivery and continuous integration, that's a whole other thing. So going back to your question, if you are if you don't have data and solid infrastructure, you're not gonna succeed with machine learning, period, right? Mm-hmm. So what we've done is a few things. One is um, on the on the data side, we've acquired data assets. We are, uh, one of our biggest investors is the Blue Venture Fund, which is part of the Blues ecosystem. Part of the Blues ecosystem is an organization called BHI, which basically collects data from all of the Blues and then commercializes the data, licenses the data, because of our connections to the Blues, we get a license of, of, of a cohort of data for a very good price. Uh, oh, that's but awesome. But it's because we're part of the family. This gives us a bit of an advantage because maybe the price one could be very expensive to for other startups, so we have that luxury. That's a really nice thing that our investors brought to the table on that side of the fence. So we have that also some time ago, um, uh, Lumiata purchased a, a big E. And that's all, sorry. So before I go to the next one, that's all claims data from BHI. Claims data and claims data containing like like all the claims metadata, all the payment information, all that, as well as medication and in some cases labs. So that's pretty good, right? That's get a lot. Yeah. That's great. You get ICDs, ICD 9s, ICD 10s, NDCs, Rx norms, LONX, all that good stuff you get yeah. in the data yeah. set with the timeline, right? And and in some cases for us, we get also the allowed amount. So like the cost of, of the services, which is something we use for cost prediction. Then on the EHR site, we've acquired a pretty big data set from Cerner. So we got a, a data set from Cerner and we got have a few others, but those are the primary ones. And we have all in all about we have data for about a hundred million people.
0: Oh my those goodness. A hundred
1: yeah, million? Yeah, yeah. Americans? America yes nationwide that's
0: 1 in 3 americans
1: <laughs> yeah 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 oh my so,
0: goodness that's 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 impressive
1: yeah so so we internally have that and then in addition when we work with a customer depending on what we're trying to do it's quite likely that we may ask them for parts of their data as well mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. When we when we train a model for a customer we they can so when we give a model to a customer they can take a pre-trained model That'll give a mm-hmm. performance, X, performance X, but we may get a few more percentage points in performance if we include part of their historical data for the training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we could also do transfer learning. We can build, we, can, we have pre-trained models. So these are big models. They, we can train a smaller model with their data, and then we can do transfer learning from one model to another.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So but that's, and these data sets are nationwide, right? they're nationwide data sets, and Um, there's enough diversity there, I think, that we can do a lot with them. I think that as we get to more obscure use cases, so for instance, if we had to do disease onset prediction for a disease for which we don't have a lot of prevalence in our data, well, that's going to be an issue, right? So Mm -hmm. um, we are going to continue to get more data from other sources over time. But we're also starting to explore other techniques, like the idea of generating synthetic data from mm. expert systems is becoming quite a thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so if you can simulate an expert system that would generate reliable, you know, well-founded, with, with a good foundation data, right? you could consistently run s- multiple simulations and things, generate synthetic data to augment your, your real data so that we have not tried that and this is something that we've just conversed about,
0: Mm -hmm. but I've
1: seen other other shops um, in other spaces, not necessarily healthcare do the same.
0: I'm curious what your thoughts are on synthetic data in a healthcare setting, because I feel like for like, you know, self-driving car setting, you know, you take photos um, and if you kind of like tweak it around a little bit or for image recognition, like people be like, okay, you know, you can change pictures of cats and train a model to recognize cats. Like people would be comfortable with that. But I'm wondering how you feel about like synthetically generating health, like human healthcare data and like building a model based on that, like would, you know, because I feel like if you were to tell the person, a a random person on the street, like, oh, you know, like we train this model using synthetic data that might make them a little uncomfortable.
1: Well, that's what, right, right. That's why you have, so you have to generate synthetic data using some sort of simulator that simulates the expert system so that the patterns generating synthetic data are very close to real. And the simulator has to be built with medical knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. You have to know that, hey, the, um, without getting too much in the weeds, how it would go down, you have to think about the trajectory that people would take. How do they get from point A to point, you know, when you come talking about disease onset, how do they go from healthy to, you know, full on developed disease and how does that mm-hmm. trajectory look like? What are the different permutations of that? You have to take medical literature to kind of do that as well. Yeah. Um, so that's one way there's other ways to generate synthetic data, which is you take a small chunk of um, real data for, for what you're trying to replicate and then algorithmically use machine learning to, to then you can use gener- generative adversarial neural networks to then generate new mm. data. So mm-hmm. another way, you're just, you're creating a model that'll literally, replicate the same patterns that are already existing in the real data. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but you're, you're right in healthcare. And this is what I think changes everything with healthcare. When you're talking about machine learning, where you have to be more careful is that, you know, you could really mess things up (laughs) if if you do things wrong. One thing is, you know, getting wrong your video recommender and then it's like, whoops, I recommended the wrong video. The person doesn't like it, no big deal, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: And there's also a real time kind of um, feedback loop where, well, the user didn't like this video. Well, that alone becomes part of the new training data to then train the new model and so forth. But in healthcare, if if you were predicting disease onset and you were gonna give that model to a care management team to do interventions, well, that's kind of a, a big deal so you have to be very careful part of the reason why we haven't gone this direction but it's one that is very fascinating to explore in the future
0: mm. so i was wondering uh, if you could give us like an example of a typical use case scenario for what your
1: clients are doing um yeah, yeah absolutely so I'll give you a couple of examples, um, going from the payer side and then to the provider side. So on the payer side, we're helping on the writing and actuarial teams uh, predict cost and risk for individuals and groups. And as you probably know, you know in the insurance space, in the healthcare insurance space, actuar- actuarial teams have been predicting these things for decades.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: right? mm-hmm. And, and they've been using pre sophisticated, yet statistical models. Right. Yeah. So in other words, their models have a number of variables, you know, seven, nine, ten, some finite set of variables. And they're represented in very complicated spreadsheets. Right. So you have your input variables and that generates some sort of output. And you know, and in some some use statistics, some even use linear regression, but that's where it kind of ends. Um, and the problem with that is well what but the data changes, right? The data changes over time. But the model, an actuarial model doesn't evolve over time. So if you apply mm. machine learning to the problem, now you will have a model that can, de- can uh, evolve as the data is evolving. Therefore you can get a more accurate prediction of the risk and the cost. Um, so yeah, I feel like so machine yeah.
0: learning would be perfect for an, in an actuarial setting, you know, cause people change, like the country changes things, healthcare changes. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. You're going beyond just having a simple variables, your demographic data, your, you know, so some very high level abstractions of the data. You're actually looking at the data, like you're training the model with the data, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you're picking up new patterns, like COVID is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, And, and right now we're conducting a couple of different studies to figure out well, what is COVID going to do to our models? Because in some cases you'll have holes for the services that were not conducted because- Lack of capacity, right? Yeah. In addition, now you're seeing new services being rendered because of the comorbidities uh, yeah. you know, with, with COVID, right? And now people have to be treated for things that we don't have to be treated for. So the patterns have changed this year, right? So again, a perfect example for machine learning to shine. Um, so, so we predict uh, costs. Uh, so we predict the actual specific cost, quarter over quarter, as well as yearly. Um, and then we also predict the what's called high cost uh, high cost claims or high cost claimants. So there's individuals that that, that I probably know that 20% of the cost in healthcare uh, or uh, 80% of the cost is incurred by less than 20% of the population, right? So that means that mm. there's very high cost people that uh, arise here and there. So payers need to be able to predict who are going to be these people right? So we predict the cost for all the groups, for all the individuals, but also we, we uh, classify the people that, that get into the high cost claimant category. And with every cost prediction, we have explainability, right? So we create explainable models, right? We put extra effort to create an explainability component to our model so that if you're an underwriter, you get a predictive cost for a group and that's going to, allow you to decide how much to charge them, or you may want to have an explanation of why, how we came up with that prediction, right? So, that, so that's one thing. Now, to make the prediction actionable, you know, this is where explainability comes in, you may want to put a little clinical context there. And what we've done is we've been, we've combined our disease onset models with cost prediction. And then we take the output of the disease-onset models and put it into the input of the cost-prediction models as features. and allows us to to predict certain conditions for the individuals and furthermore, predict the potential cost of those conditions if they develop. Mm-hmm. When you get a, a high-cost claimant prediction, you look at their explainability, and you may see something like, well, we also predict that this person person's going to have sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is going to be a big percentage of why they're going to cost this much. Oh yeah, yeah. So then, then an underwriter team can go into a care management team and say, hey, why don't we try to do an intervention? Uh, oh, that's um, cool. Uh-huh. And, and, and now this is not connecting with the provider world. That, wow, well, great segue. Yeah, now, now that tool can be used by a provider as well. You know, it, Disconnected from cost prediction if we predict disease onset or uh, hospital admission, readmission, now there's some actionability that a provider mm-hmm. can take, right? From doing an intervention. It could be as simple as trying to get the person back to see the doctor to an appointment, right? It could be as simple as that. But over time, you can start having more sophisticated, bear- more narrow targeted interventions based on what the models are saying.
0: That's cool. I feel like this could both bring down costs and improve the care of the patient. 100%, 100%.
1: I feel that, you know, a lot of times in healthcare, I'll just be very blunt. The incentives are not aligned with the well. Oh, definitely, of, definitely. Of oh my God. Uh-huh. And and I see that in the U.S. more than anywhere else. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm currently because of COVID, we're, we're spending my family spending some time in Mexico, and I've seen healthcare be very different here. It has its own dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. Here is not affordable by the by most people. But if you can afford it, first of all, it's not nearly as expensive as in the US, and and everything's better aligned to provide good outcomes. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I that unfortunately, the the, motive, the the incentives are not aligned in the right ways. However, if you start from the cost and your motivation is full, full is just straight up financial, and you're just trying to reduce cost. But if you start surfacing. Kind of explanations of that cost and those in those explanations have some clinical connection you can over time start driving that cost motivation mm-hmm. to, you know the, the the motivation of making of creating generating better health outcomes yeah right um and, and there's a lot of other so that's kind of like high level umbrella use cases and you know there's people that come asking for very specific predictions like uh, chronic kidney disease. So there's a shop that really, that's what they do. They, they deal with chronic kidney disease. So, you know, having better predictions around various aspects of it. It's what they what they want to do and we help them with, with that sort of thing. Um, there's uh, a, a customer we have today, FGC from Canada, and we're helping them. Uh, without going into too much detail, because it's so confidential, we're, we're, we're helping them with a live pharmacy experience so that mm. um, pharmacists in a pharmacy could potentially do certain kinds of interventions. Uh, in other words, you go to get your meds and we run a prediction for you and then realize, oh, wow, this person is in danger of developing Y or X. So then may, maybe there's an opportunity to do a, a soft intervention there.
0: I'm curious. Um, so, you know, we ask this question for every guest. But uh, what do you think is the future of AI in medicine, and where will
1: we be in ten to twenty years? In twenty years, it's it's hard to even know what the future will be in general in the next three years. But yeah, <laughs> I think anybody that says I can predict the future with any level of accuracy is just straight up lying. But but mm-hmm. we can have some we can have some good intuitions of where things are going. So I think that. Uh, we are definitely going to a place where, number one, AI is going to be more widely accepted in healthcare. I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw the announcement from a couple years ago. Back, sorry, a couple weeks ago. Uh, there is a, 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 an AI technology was approved for reimbursements. Oh, is it vis.ai? You know? Yes, 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 yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy, yeah.
1: So that's marking, I believe, what's about to come, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people are going to. I, I myself see that I'm like, okay, clearly now this is right for for full disruption, yeah. right? This is how. It, so things will be more adoption. Uh, I think that you will have, you will get to a place where AI and big data will be a doctor's best friend. At least mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that's that that's where we go. There's a lot of. Uh, diagnosis as a practice needs to increase this level of accuracy. Four million people die from misdiagnosis in the U.S. every year. And that's the people that die. Wow. What, about the people, what about the people that don't die and are just yeah. sick or very mm-hmm. sick because they're under, under the wrong meds mm-hmm. or they haven't really found, you know, what the real problem is? So I feel like accuracy needs to really increase in the world diagnosis. And I think preventive care has to be part of that too right and i think nutrition mm-hmm. and taking better care of yourself in a preventative way is, is an important thing where, and I, this is where i think something like functional medicine kind of comes in because you're mm-hmm. as a functional doctor you see things holistically this not just it's not just studying disease but it's more like studying health and how do we keep this person healthy so nutrition supplements and medication would need to right Uh, but then in addition, big data and AI helping with all that would be incredibly powerful because people will be able to more easily find the edge cases. Mm. And there's, Mm. uh, I mentioned this to you before, but there's a computer scientist named, um, Michael I. Jordan, not to be confused with the basketball player, Michael (laughs) I. Mm. Michael I. Jordan. He's a very, uh. A well known computer scientist from Berkeley. He's one of the directors of AMP Lab. There's a lot of data and, and machine learning research being conducted. Um, he uh, wrote a blog post where he envisions this world where you have planets, a planet scale database where mm. all the people's healthcare data is in, and then you use AI to synthesize the data and to reach. To certain conclusions based on all the observed data. I think that's a little difficult to get to planet scale database because of, I think it'll be really hard to get countries to play oh, politics
0: so, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: politics always gets in the way right? <laughs> sure for, most, for most progress, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> in mm-hmm. this. but that said, if you take that mission, I think that is really where it's at, right? And you can start with doing it at a, at a country level, right? maybe one day does happen at the planet scale level where uh, I think, so I think what I envision is that there's gonna to be tools helping doctors and in, in, in just healthcare in general, making decisions. And in some cases, you may get to autonomous decision making, right? Machine. Mm-hmm. But yeah. always with with a, with the a doctor in the loop. And there's yeah. always yeah. gonna be a, a well-educated, very smart person. <laughs> Behind these systems, right? Making sure that they're doing the right yeah. thing. But however, I mean, having said what I said though, the huge, huge blocker to this happening is people being more open. So the thing that we have to overcome for all this happen for all of this to happen is people overcoming the fear around sharing healthcare data.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: It happens at a personal level, people are afraid to share their healthcare data and companies. Are keeping their data too close to their chest because it's a big deal, right? I think the fear comes from like, well, if I put my data here, 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 now I've exposed myself to more potential breaches, right? Mm-hmm. And and a breach in, in healthcare data is a huge deal. It, and the fines are huge.
0: Yeah. The so, yeah. fines
1: could put a small startup out of business easily. Mm-hmm. So I understand why people are hesitant, but instead of just saying, hey, I'm not gonna share data. The right attitude is, well, how do we build the right security around all this data so that it can be freely shared? Mm -hmm. what are are the policies, regulations, and technology that get developed to facilitate this? Mm. We have to start with the willingness to do it, and has to start with the notion that if we do this, there are a lot more possibilities that we can go after uh, when it comes to AI and, and healthcare, mm. I was so wondering, I mean, um, okay. oh, like, no, if
0: no. you know, to the like, one, like, would you have any advice, or like, what would you, if you could say something to like a room full of med students or residents or early career physicians, like, what would you want to like tell them, you know, like how, you know, like how should we adapt to this changing healthcare, and uh, how, how, like, you know, yeah, like
1: what, <laughs> what should we do? Yeah. Yeah, one. So there's so much. I, I was telling you earlier that if I if I was able to go back to my 25 year old self and give some advice, I would give so much advice. It's not even <laughs> funny. Um, But but, but, uh, but I'll give you a, a few things. So one is, and this is going to sound a little a little new agey, but I I've I've been learning a lot about this, and it really helps. I think it's very important to be present. I think, I think it's incredibly important to be oh, mindful yeah. and being present. We as human beings, yes. it's, I have, this happens to me all the time, and I fight it all the time now, but I'm still getting over this, but I always, I'm always i always looking at the past and at the future. Mm. That's, a, like, great like, point, yeah. the That's future? a great like, point. What am I going to do with the future? What is going to be my wow. next thing? And, 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 and what am I learning from the past? And I don't, yeah. you shouldn't do it. You should look a little bit at the past, a little bit at the future. But I think you should have dedicated times when you consciously do it. You know, there may mm-hmm. be your time where you're like, this is my hour where we're going to be thinking futuristically. You know, like me as a technologist, I kind of have to do that, right? I'm going mm-hmm, to about mm-hmm. the future and plan for the future. Then you're done with that hour and then you're done. And then for the rest of your time, being very present. And the reason why I say this is, I think that being present augments our ability to listen to our intuition. Yes. And, and yeah. I think the intuition is a big thing and it's not a spiritual new age thing. It's a real thing. Right? And <laughs> mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. intuition, you'll be able to better decipher what's best for you and everybody around you, Right. And so if, if you take that as a principle, then, you know, being present, you start thinking, what are the things that I should know more about today? Mm. Like, what, what, it, but it's affecting things today. I think data science, for instance, is a big thing, right? And and I think, I feel like if you're a med student and you have the opportunity to get into a program where you can learn data science and with, with an angle to medicine and, and healthcare in general, I strongly recommend it. Because I think that if you're a, a, a medicine practitioner that has a data science additional background, that could be super powerful. Like we, yeah. we employ as Lumiata some consultants that are doctors that are also training data science. And who knows, maybe some of you guys will build the next wave of AI startups. Right? <laughs> that would be cool. Because, because here's the deal, like some of us have the technology background, but you guys have the medical background. So mm-hmm. I think when you combine the two things, right, it's very powerful. Uh, so I think that th- that would be a couple things. Be present, and I think by being present, you can probably intuit that data science is a thing, right? And, and it's an important thing for, for for a mess. Yeah. Um, I love what I, you
0: said about the intuition there because you know this. We here we are talking about uh, artificial intelligence, but I think the intuition you mentioned—that's like human intelligence. You know, that is right. like what makes us human is we have that gestalt, intuitive kind of like almost black box thinking you know
1: <laughs> yeah 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 exactly exactly i remember there's this thing that steve jobs this is by steve jobs uh where he said something like you know if you manage to slow your mind slow enough then you'll be everything will get quiet enough that then you'll be able to hear your intuition like mm. steve jobs used to be huge on 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 intuition and, and you know he accomplished quite a bit so i, I kind of listened to what he had to say <laughs> yeah um so those would be a couple of things and another thing is you know diversify it, 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 what you do in other words you know i myself have gone to stages where all i do and think about is technology i have other passions for instance i have music yeah and, So I've spent time producing house music and DJing and spent time at nightclubs. And I've even traveled with my DJ friends and, you know, done gigs outside of the U.S., things like that. Or or just witnessed their gigs outside of the U.S. And very different from technology, very different from everything that we've said. But that part, I was really passionate about for very long. I'm still passionate about it. I just can't do it as much lack of time but Mm -hmm. it it kept me going right like whenever the technology side wasn't going so well i still had my music side music Mm. wasn't going so well i still had my technology side so i think it's very important to keep a creative outlet that does not have the pressure of of making money or making career progress having a a some activity that is purely for the sake of being creative. And it could be knitting, and it could be even playing some certain sports could be a creative practice, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. depending on the sport. So I think it, it doesn't matter what it is. We all have one of those things. Like some of us have multiple of those things that we're very passionate about. And I think you should do it. Don't get stuck in thinking, I'm just going to focus on medicine. Yeah. You should focus hard work on medicine, but don't just do medicine. Have one thing on the side that'll give you an outlet. Because I think it'll keep you balanced. I, I I feel like, like if you if you fall in medicine, you still have this other thing to like to catch you. Yeah, and not yeah. fall all the way. The the other thing would be, uh, going back to the to the being present. I think we human beings have the tendency to create in our heads what our careers are gonna be like, or should.
0: Oh, uh, I have a or, terrible what, problem
1: with that. <laughs> what they should yeah. look like but if we're yes. so focused on what they have to be we are not being pressing that we're not seeing the opportunities that life itself is putting like literally right in front of us mm. right so i think like don't i guess plan but don't hard code your path be open mm. to possibilities that you weren't even thinking about and i think I think typically when you do that, you get to an even better spot that you thought you would be in. I like that a lot. Wow. But it's when you fight. in my personal opinion, when I have fought what's being presented in front of me, by thinking, no, but it's gotta be this way. I don't wanna do this, like, no, it's gotta be this way. I get so fixated, everything around me starts collapsing very, very rapidly. Like things just go wrong, and you know what's the issue? We as humans can be very stubborn. Sometimes we see that is not going right, and we're still like, "No, but this is what I said I was gonna do." Yeah, and I'm not saying to not be determined. That's a different thing. But I'm just saying, be present and be open to what's happening because I think opportunities will arise that you may have not thought about, and you have to rewrite your whole script of what you thought success was gonna look like. Mm. Wow.
0: I'm feeling inspired now, man. That, Thank you. <laughs> I feel like you. So my my, my last question for you was going to be like, you know, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? But I feel like you've already. I, you, a lot you know, of this you, advice.
1: <laughs> that was that, yeah, that, that was that right there, huh? A lot of this advice and also like not. I, I do this thing, which is obsessed by how not successful I am yet. Mm-hmm. and that's probably something mm-hmm. sometimes good because it makes you push yourself mm-hmm. but I, I need to stop doing that like i think we, we should never do that i mean again like that is kind of good sometimes because that means that you're always pushing yourself and think you are more yeah slow, you're always never happy <laughs>
0: yeah i feel like it's a well, tough balance you know it's like part of it is like yeah you're like driving yourself um and then even like you were saying like you know you like you, you want to have like Well, we're we're told, you know, like as med students, we're always told, like, you know, you got to be ambitious, you want to have a goal, keep your eye on the prize kind of thing. But then at the same time, like when you do that, it's really hard to be present because you're always fixated (laughs) on the future and you're fixated on something that you're not. You're fixated on what you're lacking.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I mean, man, I I could go in a rabbit hole here, but I'll just go off on a tangent really quick. Uh, There's a book by a gentleman called Eckhart Tolle. It's mm-hmm. called the New World, and uh, let
0: me write this down. Yeah,
1: he literally talks about this. He has another book previous to this that I think is good, but uh, the, the, this his books are the reason why I started thinking this way. It's pretty, um, it's different, and at first time I was like, "Well, how does this work? Are you always going to be just present? So, how are you going to innovate?" if you're not thinking about the future, right? And <laughs> <In, laughs> beyond, beyond the book, I've I've listened to uh, some of his interviews and podcasts that he's done with with even people like Oprah. Hearing him speak when questions are asked to him helped me better synthesize the content of the book um, because mm. some people that ask questions have the same questions that I have, right? So it's not like you, like, you know, he would say that like you don't, it's not that you don't think about the future. It's just like, Allocate times to do that, but don't have this obsessive thing that's always. You know, he talks about the ego. He talks about the ego as almost like a, like an entity that lives lives inside of you. You got to be so careful of it because it's, it can lead us to the wrong path. And that's a part of ourselves that's always thinking. It's the ego. You know, yeah, even in, no, the me- in sure. a meeting, even in a meeting, you're thinking about what you're going to say, not because even because you want to get the best outcome, but well. What am I going to say? Because that's going to drive things in the direction I want them to, to go.
0: Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Right. And it's always that voice. It's always going and going and going and going. It's just good to like quiet it down. It's hard, by the way. I'm saying all these things, but for sure, I fight it every single day. <laughs> it's, not easy. Mm. it's not easy. But I think that's why some people adopt the, pra- and I haven't, but I, that's, I think why some people adopt the practice of meditation yeah right. and, and all out of you know in and, and yoga stuff. So it's just things that can help you exercise mindfulness
0: mm. i think it's um pretty cool i don't know like a little parent it, it like makes a lot of sense in my mind but it's also kind of like ironic that like you know like i think i'm a big fan of how you're a proponent of, of like being mindful and calming yourself and being still but at the same time like your your hobby is being a techno house dj which is very like you know, like, but then, but then, you know, I feel like with techno and house music, like part of it is like kind of not losing yourself,
1: but like it is. You, you're no, in the I, moment.
0: You're in the moment. Well, you know, you're just kind of enjoying that's yourself.
1: I, that's what I love about D j is that it's one of the few moments where I can just naturally, intuitively just be fully present, yes, right? yeah. so you're you're playing you're playing music. you're doing the performance for the crowd that's there. And you have to be present to read, to know. Yeah. what is the next, what is the next tune that I'm gonna play for them that's gonna make him want to continue dancing? Yeah, like I remember when I started DJing, I I <laughs> I cleared the dance floor a few times. Oh me- no! Yeah, that's- yeah, it's a big deal when you cle- when you play a record and then well, record that's my old school lingo, but when you mm-hmm. play a track and and the whole dance floor just completely goes away, it's a terrifying feeling. You're like, Holy yeah. crap, like yeah. I totally messed up here. And you learn that you need to be super present to really observe what's happening and then intuit what is the next tune that you're gonna play. Oh, yeah. And I think I, it's really interesting that as, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking like, I think you can use that as an analogy to life. Like, you're DJing, like, mm-hmm. your life is a, is a, is a multi year DJ set. <laughs> yeah. You need to, figure, you need to yeah. figure out what is the next record you're gonna play. But to know what the next record is, you have to be present.
0: Yeah, and I feel like, you know, the beautiful thing about DJing. You know, not to get even more meta, but like I think the best DJs, not only like are they really good at reading the crowd, I feel like it gets to a point where like in, their intuition and your intuition are almost like blended together. You know what I mean? You kind of like beat together. It's like right. the crowd gives you their energy yes. and then you absorb it and then you give them back the energy and you kind of kind of become this like, it's like you're, you know, you almost meld together.
1: 100% that's awesome I love that uh, that thought yes I, I agree and you know you 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 feed each other right yeah you, you you produce like you said you produce energy that gets to people and then that produces new energy and that gets to you and it and, and you do feel it like I mean I you know I I, I have I've had, had modest DJ gigs compared to some people that I know and some compared to some uh, international artists but there's been a few gigs that you know were you know had hundreds hundreds of people mm-hmm. and the feeling of a good dj gig is just uh, there's nothing like it because you oh, yeah. feel the energy like you're feeling things coming back to you it's it's, it's a wonderful feeling
0: um, And like as a person you know if well, i'm going and yeah, if i go yeah. to a great dj set oh it's such a great feeling you know when you feel like the dj really <laughs> like reads you and you like you know you they're kind of like when you just feel like that 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 vibe That's
1: right, that's right. And you know, some people say, well, you know, some DJs are not doing much. They're just playing one record against another. The the really, really good ones don't just do that. The really, really good ones, like there's somebody that's been a fan for decades, which is called Richie Houghton. Richie Mm Houghton is a techno DJ. He's always pushing the needle to the next thing. And he does a lot in his DJs. Like people don't even realize all the things that he's doing uh, with his gear and whatnot. That's it, but let's just say that you were just playing one record on top of the other, you know, like mixing one to the next. Even if you were just doing that, it takes some skill to do that. Again, I think you could easily clear the dance floor. Like if you don't know what you're doing, you get up there and you play a record. Like, Ooh, what? I'm just going to go have a drink. So um, anyway, we, we digress.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a great tangent. Do you think... Um in your mind like you know djing and machine learning healthcare like how do you see any like bridge that connects the two or you know i'm curious like do they intersect in any interesting (laughs) ways
1: that's a good question i haven't really thought about that aspect to be honest but so machine learning connects both right because there is a lot of really cool stuff happening with machine learning and music production. Oh, I didn't like know that. Wow. Yeah. Oh man, it's awesome. I could just spend a whole nother hour. No, <laughs> but people have been using GANs, generative adversarial mm-hmm. networks, to generate new music. And and you you know you know MIDI right? So MIDI is you know. Oh, M I D I right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's all numbers in a sense. So if you give it, if, if you, if you have examples of what a good track is, you could easily generate new good tracks
0: uh-huh, and
1: uh-huh. but what's cool about it is that, you know, you may not generate a new track and then just use it as is, but it could be a cool way to generate stems, right? So you, you can create like little licks or little in and, and that could be, and then you take that and then you build something bigger on top of it. Mm. So I think, I think it's, I think like with everything else, machine learning is just providing new automation that allows you to scale, right? Yeah. So you could even scale like as a music producer, if basic machine learning, you can more quickly produce things and, and more diverse things. So, so anyway, th- I think machine learning connects the two in that sense, because you can use machine learning for both, but I don't know how you can make it a triangle yet. <laughs> <laughs> but but so that's, it- that's great. I see the, I see the bridge already. Yeah, yeah. Wow. There's a bridge, but I don't know how you would make it a, a full circle uh, or a full full oval. Um, but I mean, hell, I mean, it's interesting. The other day, uh, our CEO was saying, "Hey, why don't you why don't you play a, a virtual DJ set for the company?" That would be you know, so they, cool. It would be a, a thing to to bring people together and whatnot. So maybe that's the way that it's connected. Oh, <laughs> uh, invite me, please. If you do, I <laughs> <Yeah, okay. laughs> would show up. That's an idea. Like inviting people outside of the too. All right, all right. We're creating new ideas on the fly here. Yeah.
0: Well, Miguel, I feel like we've, we've come full circle. You know, we started out talking about music and then we talked about the machine learning healthcare, and now we've kind of come back full circle. Uh, I wanted to thank you for just being such an awesome guest. Um, I was wondering, you know, is there any last words or anything you want to add before
1: we close today? Last oh, words. Uh, I think, you know, for the people listening, um, you know, being present, just take care of yourself, you know, sleep well. Mm -hmm. I I haven't been the best at that. You know, I've gone through stages where I'm like, I can just go in three hours of sleep for days and I can do more. I've learned that, yes, you, you can do that, but it has a, 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 a material effect on you. Like now, I'm the other way, and now I try to figure out how to sleep the most that I can. I'm always looking at my time. I'm like, oh, I'm only going to get seven hours. How do I get to eight? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed in the other direction, but it's because I feel the difference, you know? So I take, yeah. take care of myself, eat well, look at what the labels say on the <laughs> a whole other topic of discussion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, take care of yourself, I think it's very important mm.
0: Well, it was such a delight, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Miguel was a really inspiring guy, and I am trying my best to live in the present. He's inspired me to pursue my side hobby of becoming a rapper, a side of me I never took seriously until I realized that perhaps it was never meant to be taken seriously. Best pursued just for fun, and because I enjoy it. Once again, the track playing in the background is DJ Miguel's very own creation, Back of My Mind. And finally, I'd like to close by giving a shout out to the Mammal Podcast team, Aaron Schumacher and Benjamin Simpson and the Mammal Exec Board, Olivia Smith, Brooke Raymond, Soren Cantessaria, and Nicholas Heller. See y'all on the next episode. Peace.